0: welcome to the buddha sasana podcast this talk was given by bhikkhu Chintita in austin texas In an earlier talk, I spoke of the role of the Sangha in instilling faith in the wider community. Faith is a step we must all take before we take the next step of actualizing Buddhist practice with a degree of wholeheartedness and devotion. Actually, faith is more of a leap because it must span the chasm between what we know about what we're getting ourselves into, and what we would like to know to be sure about our choice. But there we are on one side of the chasm, desperate and without reasonable alternatives, and so we take the leap, and we feel a sense of relief or refuge for having made the leap, for we trust we have thereby escaped our desperate condition. In the same talk, I also mentioned that Buddhist faith is centered on the triple gem. We gain faith in the Buddha, we gain faith in the Dharma, and we gain faith in the Sangha, the three discernible sources of Buddhist wisdom. There's a great drama in these great decisions, initially urgency and fear, then reflection, then commitment, then outcome. Where trust is ongoing, devotion or veneration might follow. The resolution to trust is expressed as a sudden relief as it carries us to safety. The uncertainty that has given rise to fear and urgency may not yet be eliminated, but once urgency has turned to commitment, worry can be relinquished. The sense of ease is a refuge, a sense of entrusting oneself, much as we as children entrust our well-being to our parents. The trust we place in the Triple Gem often arises from a sense of urgency. This is called in Pali Sangwega, a kind of horror at the realization of the full nature and depth of the human condition. It's said that the Buddha to be experienced sangwega when, as a somewhat frivolous Nepalese playboy, he learned to his dismay of sickness, of old age, and of death, and in response began his quest, like the hippies of yore, to India. Sangwega arises when we lose our capacity for denial, which is a likely outcome when frivolity ceases. The Buddha-to-be then recognized at the sight of a wandering ascetic an option that gave rise to the bold resolution to address his despair. It's said that he then experienced a sense of calm relief that in Pali is called Pasada, the antidote to the distress of sangwega. Actually, this process need not be so dramatic, at least not at the outset. Those born into Buddhist cultures and families learn faith in the Triple Gem from infancy before they possess the gift of discernment. As discernment grows through contact with admirable friends, faith grows to reinforce the notions and values imparted to the little ones. And even for people who come to Buddhism as adults, although we need a lot of faith to succeed in practice, we don't need a lot of faith to begin practice. We can start with a little faith, then revisit our faith periodically. As our practice produces a track record of results, we acquire more discernment and we allow our faith, wholeheartedness and devotion to practice to grow. Underlying the metaphors of both refuge and gem is protection or safety. A refuge at the Buddhist time was understood as the protection provided by a mentor, patron, or benefactor in return for a vow of allegiance. Gems, similarly, were generally believed to have provided special protective properties. Refuge in the triple gem represents particularly for those. Not born Buddhist, a bold decision to entrust ourselves in a way of life, understanding, and practice that will at first have all the uncertainty and mystery that virgin territory has to the explorer or that a deep and dark cave has to the spelunker. Just as a plan of action is a refuge to relieve the panic of the castaway or of those buried in rubble, entrusting oneself to a path of practice toward awakening provides a refuge from sangwega. Today I want to discuss the three refuges in turn, beginning with the Buddha. In our tradition, we recite the following ancient text. The The Blessed One is is an an arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true knowledge and conduct fortunate knower of the world unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed teacher of devas and humans the awakened one the blessed one most religions worship some personality buddhism is striking in that the role of veneration is occupied primarily by a now deceased human being rather than a deity or supernatural being, albeit a person who attained some remarkable qualities. We already tend to venerate people with remarkable qualities, for instance, our favorite geniuses like Einstein or Mozart. But the Buddha was a threefold genius. First, the Buddha became a supremely awakened one, a Buddha, worthy, exalted, and with no one having illuminated the path for him. He thereby attained perfect mastery of the mind, achieving perfect wisdom, virtue, and equanimity. This was his first form of genius. Second, he was able to teach what he had attained, to lay out the Dharma the proper understanding of reality and the means to tame, drive, and master humans and other beings. This was his second form of genius. Third, he organized the Buddhist community, in particular the institution of the Sangha, to support, propagate, and perpetuate the understanding and practice of his teachings, the Sasana, His third form of genius is rarely mentioned in such terms, but the listener will hopefully appreciate the immensity of this accomplishment in these talks. In short, the Buddha's threefold genius is directly tied to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, in which we take refuge as the originator, the teacher, and the patriarch. When we take refuge in the Buddha, we see in this towering personality the highest qualities we might choose to emulate. Refuge in the Buddha is nonetheless an act of trust, beginning with the trust that such a personality is even possible, particularly that awakening is a possibility. It is only with deep practice and study, with our own progress on the path, that we begin to see how his qualities of mind are actually starting to begin to emerge gradually in ourselves, and that our trust is confirmed. Faith is necessary in the beginning until we see for ourselves. There's a little indication that the Buddha intended to become the center of a personality Cult, he discouraged some of the more extreme forms of reverence he received. Once, telling an awe-struck follower, in a most literal sense of follower, "Why do you, you want to see this foul this body? body? One, one who, who sees, sees the Dhamma sees me, me and, and one who, who sees me sees the Dhamma." Nevertheless, the Buddha also seems to have recommended contemplation of himself for recitation such as the one that began this talk, alongside contemplations of the Dharma and the Sangha. So let's look at refuge in the Dharma. The Dharma Dharma is is well expounded by the Blessed blessed One, directly directly visible, visible, immediate, immediate, inviting inviting one to to come and see, see, applicable, to to be personally experienced by the wise. Well expounded is the teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha also said, When someone going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha sees with right insight the Four Noble Truths, suffering, the arising of suffering, the overcoming of suffering, and the Eightfold Path leading to the ending of suffering, then this is the secure refuge, this is the supreme refuge. By going to such refuge, one is released from all suffering. The Dharma stands out in its empirical quality, come and see. The Dharma points almost entirely to what can be verified in our direct experience or instructs us in ways to move the mind into certain experiences. Many in the West are inspired to trust the Dharma in the first place upon learning of this refreshing quality of the Dharma. Some caution is, however, in order, lest one thinks this entails that we should trust our own experience above all. In fact, for the Buddha, the typical uninstructed worldling is actually astonishingly deluded and the Dharma quite against the stream from his perspective. We get hopelessly confused in trying to see, much less interpret, our own experience. For this reason, the Buddha in the famous Kalama Sutta warns us not to base one's understanding on one's own thinking. Come, Kalamas. Do not go by logical reasoning, by inferred reasoning, by reason cogitation, by the acceptance of a view after pondering it. In fact, when the Buddha says "Come," he is shouting down to us, Flatlanders, from the mountaintop. To arrive at his vantage point, we need to scramble up hills struggle through brambles and ford rivers. When the Buddha says, see, we need to focus our eyes intently in the right direction to barely make out what the Buddha sees with great clarity of vision. In order to be willing to do all of this, we have to establish from the beginning great faith that the Buddha knew what he was talking about. This is refuge. What else would induce us to make the difficult climb up the mountain? Investigation and personal verification are necessary parts of following the dharmic path, but they take time and effort before we can say, I have come and now I see. Until then, faith is essential. For instance, the Buddha taught that craving is the origin of suffering, the second noble truth. At first, this may seem, at least to some, an abstract proposition which we must ponder and try our darndest to match up with observation. The most likely early outcome is to dismiss this proposition as simply mistaken. It seems pretty clear to us. For instance, that buying that snazzy shirt we so want would make us exceedingly dashing and that that would lead to improved prospects for romance and other forms of social and perhaps even business success. Therefore, we conclude craving clearly leads not to suffering but to happiness However, refuge entails instead that we decide to trust the Buddha before our own premature cogitation about our own experiences. Eventually, through years of examination on and off the cushion, we might discover that the second noble truth is not an abstraction at all. It is something that bites us on the nose over and over all day, every day. We begin to notice that as soon as craving comes up, the suffering is right behind it. As soon as we have to have that shirt, there is stress and anxiety, unmistakably. We might discover that we had been living in a world of incessant suffering, a world of flame, all along but not noticing it. In brief, Without refuge in the Dharma, we would never have scrambled to the mountaintop. We've already taken refuge implicitly in many faulty non-Buddhist ideas and habits taught to us from a young age or absorbed through too much TV. And we are bound to cling to those until we take refuge in the Dharma, naively misperceiving them, for products of our own free thinking. As the contemplation given for the Dharma, it is the wise who realize for themselves. The Japanese Zen master Shohaku Okamura, in a similar vein, once said of Zen meditation, It takes a lot of faith to do Zazen. Otherwise, nobody would do something so stupid. Finally, Refuge in the Sangha. The Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, the four pairs of persons, the eight kinds of individuals. This Sangha of the Blessed One's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of reverential salutation, the unsurpassed field of merit for the world. Living, breathing role models are found in every religious tradition, but in Buddhism these become primary objects of veneration and trust. This makes perfect sense since living, breathing persons have the most immediate influence on our lives, and are most likely to have brought us to refuge in the Triple Gem in the first place. Unfortunately, sometimes we accord this privilege naively to ruffians and scoundrels rather than to admirable friends. For the Buddha, the noble Sangha is most worthy. The phrase in the verse above, the four pairs of persons, the eight kinds of individuals, refers to the four stages of awakening, beginning with stream entry and subdividing each of these by path and fruit. These are the attainments that define the noble Sangha or noble ones. Since the benchmark goal of Buddhism is set at the singular attainment of awakening Its role models have to be quite exceptional in their attainment of full or partial awakening. The subsequent lines refer to the practice of giving alms and veneration to monks and nuns, the monastic Sangha. The idea is that the Sangha brings great benefit to the world, but that their attainment and presence are enabled by those who sustain them, and thereby share in bringing benefit to the world often compared to sowing a fertile field. The generosity of alms is thereby the primary means of expressing veneration to the third gem. Both practices, veneration itself and generosity as a specific expression, are important elements in cultivating wholesome mental factors for the actor, which is what merit really is. Refuge opens the heart and mind to the influence of the example of the Buddha, the teachings of the Buddha, and to subsequent generations of worthy teachers. One cannot learn from someone. One does not first hold in high regard. When we venerate the elderly, school teachers, professors, piano teachers, and good cooks, We take seriously what they have to impart and so open our hearts and minds to learn more quickly from them. In the case of the Triple Gem, we provide for ourselves a firm foundation upon which to structure our lives. Next week we'll discuss the ways we practice veneration in order to improve the effects of refuge on our understanding and practice of the Buddhist way of life.